Hey friends, this is Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. Hey friends, we're back with part two with Jenna Padaka. She is the head of roasting for Royal Coffee in Oakland, California, and founder of the She's the Roaster campaign. If you haven't listened to part one, go ahead, go backwards, listen to that first, because we're going to get really into the nitty gritty of Jen's day-to-day job. So let's get started. So I want to do like two things. First, I want to like fast forward to now um, and talk a little bit about what you do now. What do you, what do you like about your job now? Like what, what like fulfills you in what you do now? Right. What I do now is, um, so I work as, I work for Royal Coffee, who's a green coffee importer, but I'm the director of roasting and we are not a roasting operation. So that's strange enough. Um, but my job is to be a liaison or a resource for our roasting clients, um, specifically around the coffees uh, that we sell. So my job on like the day-to-day or the week-to-week is that I'll be given a sample of coffee and um, I'll, I might have some information about it, like um, density, moisture, uh, water activity. I know where it came from. I have some, uh, ba- basic information about the coffee. Um, and I, and I roast it and I do like, I, some, I, most of the time I do, um, like a roast on the Akawa and then I, we cup it and we taste it and what are we getting? And so sometimes, you know, like you're cupping and you're tasting the coffee for the coffee, like what, what kind of like specialty green is this coffee? But as a roaster, I'm tasting I've, I like to focus on like what is available or, you know, like how can I influence the flavor of this coffee? Can the flavor be influenced of this coffee? You know, what, what is possible with this coffee based on how I decide to roast it? And then I also roast again on like a probatino. And um, so I, I, I graph my roasts and I, and I publish like the flavor notes that we got and I try and walk and my in my writing, I try and walk people through what I did, um, but I I don't try and tell people necessarily like what to do. Um, I I think that there are there are a lot of different companies that um, do very well, and they all roast coffee that, and they all have customers who want what they want. And maybe the way that I might choose to roast a coffee might be not be the way that somebody else might choose to do the coffee. And I don't think that either way is right or wrong. Um, what I'm hoping is not to dictate to people what's delicious and what they should be doing and what they are doing is wrong if they're not doing it my way. Instead, I'd rather tell them what I did and be as honest and as transparent as possible about it. When I fail, I let them know that I fail. You know, it's like this, you know, I was a little disappointed on the acidity in this. I think that I wanted it to be a little bit brighter. If I had the opportunity to roast this coffee again, I would try and change my profile by doing this. So I just really want to be an honest, uh, like, like an honest, um, like coworker to our clients in a way, you know, like I want, I, I hope that they, they can trust what I say and that they feel like I might be on their team on their like quality control team. Maybe there's something about the way that you describe your job that makes it seem like you are this, like you get to be like a pure roaster in a way. Yeah, I guess I do. I mean, I'm really lucky. This this job doesn't really exist anywhere else. So um, I'm very fortunate. 
And beyond that, I get to teach wisdom classes, which is really rad. And um, I really enjoy teaching. I definitely have a way that I teach um, that is very similar to to what I just said. I, I like people to be honest about what they did, know how, you know, feel confident about knowing how to manipulate the roasting machine. Uh, know if they want to make a plan and they want to get somewhere that they have the confidence or know how to learn how to build that intuition to get to where they're trying to achieve on paper. But then at the same time, you know, taste everything, cup everything blind and be willing to be open that your plan or your idea of what is delicious on paper might not be what you're actually tasting in the cup. And to be pleasantly surprised by that and you know, so I know that I have several ways that I roast coffee and, and that has come from like, just having like a really great community of roasters that I've, that I've worked with in my past. What other past experiences have you kind of relied on that don't just shape the way that you roast coffee, but maybe just shape the way that you are? Sure. That's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. Well, thinking a little bit about I know that you've mentioned before that you come from a family of folks who are in unions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my whole family is, you know, is very pro-union. Um, in fact, like my my grandfather, my father, my uncles, even uh, one of my aunts were um, union iron workers here in the Bay Area. So, so the idea of having job security and collective bargaining, and the power of being able to to sort of uh, like negotiate the price of your own labor is all. I, I think that when I was young, I kind of took it all for granted. And now in this sort of society where there's less and less um, power in unions or less unions for that sake, um, you know, I, I really appreciate what I did learn. So um, when I was in just after college, so I call, I graduated in like 2000 and I went on, a bunch of trips. And one of the jobs that I earned that I got after um, coming back was um, a job at the Museum of Modern Art. And I got the experience to be, um, they needed a union steward. And so I, I took the job. And uh, I got to go to some trainings at Laney College. And, um, and at the same time, too, I had a, a lot of friends who were um, labor organizers for different unions around the city. So, um, I mean, at the time also, like I was definitely, I was definitely an activist. I, I mean, I, we, I did, we did food, not bombs. And like, we, uh, had, um, you know, we were one of the weekly kitchens in San Francisco for about a year. Um, I was a wobbly, the industrial workers of the world. Um, I, it was definitely in my blood, you know, to be like very pro worker and, here I was at Blue Bottle having this job as um, a manager, which was interesting. You know, so here's this like punk rocker who's like never going to be a landlord, never going to be a boss, and um, and I and I'm not a landlord, um, but uh, I was a boss. You know, I definitely was in control of who got hired, when they received um, raises, when they received promotions. Um, what if, you know, I was in, I also had to fire people. It was, um, is a really, really big responsibility. And it's not something that I strived to, it's not something that I wanted for myself in my career, but, um, 
I tried to be, and I, and I didn't know what a good boss could look like. And I'm not even sure that there is such a thing as a good boss to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, man, I don't know. This is like definitely a big can of worms here. Those were, I for, I think I forgot your original question. No, I think this is more interesting now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it is like, especially for someone like you who has that background of, of being part of activist groups and, and seeing your parents and grandparents be part of unions. And then like also being someone who is promoted or is put in charge of people. And you're like, how do you rectify like these two kind of things? How do you rectify these two ideas? Like, do they ever get rectified? Or do you just live in this like strange conundrum at all times? Or do you like refuse these jobs and maybe the person who takes over will do a worse job? Like, how do you, like, I have no idea. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think that's everyone's own personal choice. I think I was up for the challenge. I definitely had the pressure of um, trying to support a family in the Bay Area and needed that promotion. So um, that also comes into play. My personal financial security. Um, but I think that at least with my training of being a union steward, um, there were several times as a union steward, like what you do is that you represent the workers of the union, right? And um, so let's say there is some type of um, uh, discrepancy at work where somebody is, um, you know, to be uh, reprimanded for whatever it might be, like not uh, being enthusiastic, you know, <laughs> um, on the retail floor or uh, whatever it might be. Like there's a reason why they're not getting promoted. There's um, meetings that where, you know, one, the person can come and like, um, meet with their union steward and tell them their side of the story. And there's, and we can go to human resources and talk to human resources and try and um, make a case for this person, right? This worker who feels that they were, they were wronged by their manager. And that experience of knowing that when you speak to human resources in any company at all, any company. And there are some really great people doing great stuff in human resources and trying to make things better, I'm sure. However, you know, at the end of the road, human resources represents the company as a whole. And human resources will never be um, like a union steward or their second mission is to represent the workers. So Anytime somebody deals with a situation where they feel that they've been wronged or discriminated against with a company, you know, they really are, and especially if they don't have a union, they're completely by themselves, you know, and for them to be expected to come forward and talk to their boss about something um, is like going straight into the lion's mouth, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, people, I know people have gone to like, human resources. They think that, you know, they're like, oh, they listen to me. I feel like I've been listened to. And then the next thing you know, they're like being let go in a few more months because that person like causes too many problems or whatever that might be. So I just feel like I wanted, I knew that I wanted to be a boss that people could come to me honestly, but I also was not going to 
be delusional and think that people were going to talk to me without being frightened. You know, like if I'm your boss and I'm the one who decides if you get raises or if you get fired, I can't expect for you to feel comfortable to free, to be completely open with me and tell me what your concerns are with your job. Or maybe even if I'm doing something that you don't like, or, you know, like it's how, how can you hold your boss accountable you know, in that situation when you're so vulnerable. So um, I had, I just had a lot of, a lot of one-on-ones with people, but I also, it's just really hard. It's really hard because you can't be friends with anybody when you're their employer, but you can, the, the best thing you can do is just be completely honest with yourself about whether or not you're seriously checked in. So I made commitments to myself that if I was ever going to fire somebody or let them go, that we would have several documented conversations. And when the day came that I came to like fire them, that they would know before I even had to open my mouth because it should never be a surprise. Yeah, that is something that is not totally fulfilled in a lot of places. So, and it's, it's, it's so easy, I think. I think if people are doing something wrong and if you're their boss and if you care about them, you should want them to do it right. And you should tell them. And it seems like that's not always the case, but I don't know. People avoid conflict. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like everyone does it. I do it too. You know, like nobody wants to have to be that person who has to like bring up all of your shortcomings, but then, you know, and then document them and then work on like a plan to like, you know, get, get you to improve. But, um, I think that it's not a great conversation to start, but um, I do find that if you hold people accountable, but then also you make your expectations very clear and they understand what your expectations are, when you hold anybody accountable, like they... They kind, they kind of appreciate it because otherwise if you're like, we want to do this and we want to do A, B, and C, we want to do all these things. But then when nobody does those things, you don't hold anybody accountable for it. And then they're like, well, you know, Jen's just full of shit. She says she wants all these things, but you know, when we don't do them, <laughs> she doesn't call us out on it. So when, when should we believe her, you know? Right. Right. And that's, that's part of building trust as a manager is that if you say something and you want it to be done in a certain way. And then you reprimand people for not doing it that way. You're like, well, what am I, how have I done my job as a manager to make sure that people can do their jobs? Right. Like that was just rambling nonsense. Anyway. It's It's really hard. And the other thing too, is none of us are trained in how to do this the best way. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to like focus on all these other like emergencies and fires that you have to put out, you know, and you're like, well, I really should talk to Joe over there, but you know, like right now I got to make sure this order goes through. So, and that's more important. So I'll, I'll just talk to Joe tomorrow, you know, and then it's been a couple of weeks and then you realize you never talked to Joe and you're like, well, maybe I should, you know, maybe it's too late for me to bring it up. Or, I mean, I, I get it. I get why people do it. I totally think it's human nature, but it's still, you know, we got, we got to do better. We got to make time for it. And if you're going to be, if you want to be in charge of people and you want to hire and fire, and if you want to wield that power, then you have to, you have to do the real work. So I want to talk about your time in Mexico as well, because you've mentioned before that your time in Mexico with the Zapatistas kind of pushed you into coffee. It made you want to do coffee as a career. 
Yeah, it did. It did. So can you tell us about what, what you were doing down there? Yeah. So, um, like I said, I was an activist in, in California. Um, I did a lot of, a lot of things. One of the groups that I worked with a little bit and mostly as like a person who benefited from receiving information at meetings and definitely wasn't an organizer for them was the Chiapas support committee. And, uh, there were all these really amazing things happening um, with the Zapatistas and people don't talk about them very much anymore. But when I was in college, it was so important. It was like a part of like my daily Intel information is like, what does an autonomous, you know, community look like, you know, here we have these like indigenous groups in Chiapas and they're like, you know, we are not getting any support from the government. So, you know, screw the government. We're just going to form our own, our own autonomous community and you have no rule over us. Right. And the government responded um, militarily um, as anybody would expect (laughs) a government to respond. Um, And they responded with force and violence. And uh, there was an outcry, you know, this is like the beginnings of the internet too, you know? So like, when I went to college, like that's when I got my first email. I mean, like a, a search engine was Alta Vista, you know, there was no Google, you know, so like just to bring you back to like where, where the world was, which I think can be a little hard for people who are so used to being so interconnected with social media. But there were um, several journalists and sort of like a, like this just global support network who was like, we are here and we are witnessing what is happening Um, There were camps that you could sign up for and um, stay and be basically a military observer um, at at Zapatista communities um, just to help protect them from um, anything that might happen. I mean, at the same time, you're kind of putting yourself on the line as well. It's not, it was not super, not super safe work. And I had um, an opportunity. I saved up a bunch of money and went on a trip. Um, I left the U.S. I was going to expatriate. You know, I was, I was Arnold Schwarzenegger was getting sworn in as the governor of California. And that was like that was happening, I, I believe, on, like right as I'm waiting to get my flight to Oaxaca. I was like, I'm out of here. Right. And um, so I, I went to Oaxaca and I took some Spanish lessons. I mean, I've been taking Spanish lessons my entire life and I'm still not fluent and uh, went up to to work with the Zapatistas. I had a connection um, through a friend with the uh, Unitarian church that had a house that I was able to like stay in while I was there. And, um, you know, you get there and they're like, what would you like to do? And, um, you know, I'm not, I do like to draw. I am probably a little bit more creative, but I don't consider myself like a, an, an artist. So I didn't want to like help create a play about the plight of the Zapatistas. I wanted to, I wanted to do physical labor that might make um, the people in those communities lives better. And um, I wanted to do something more like a public works project. I got connected with some, a group of folks that were putting together um, uh, a building. But um, as I found out, as I worked on it, because it was illegal, it was a radio station. And they, so I hauled cinder blocks for two weeks um, in the middle of the rainy season on a slope. I mixed uh, cement by hand and, uh, and they didn't have an electrician and I knew, um, basic wiring. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I basically, I bought a, I bought a bunch of Romex and 
some tools and I installed the electricity in this building, a very small building, but, um, anyhow, yeah, that was, and I worked, it was me and it was my partner at the time. And, um, and about five or six folks from different Zapatista communities that were all taking time away from their regular work to help with this one job because the, their, uh, the caracol decided that, you know, this job needed to be needed to be done. So it was very cold of really hard work. And at the end of the day, we would, you know, I, I would, it would, you know, it's actually really great speaking Spanish when everybody's Spanish is their second language. So the guys I was working with were, um, Totsil and that that's their language. So Spanish is their second language. So we both can get all of our verb tenses wrong and still communicate and have, and have a great time. And, uh, those guys were all coffee farmers. Well, one of them actually was um, made leather boots, but um, most of them were coffee farmers. And I, I learned that the Zapatistas grow coffee and I wanted to stay connected to this community and support them, support them financially, but not in a charitable way, in, um, in a way where I was helping them, you know, thrive through their own work. And I'm like, you know, I think that I need, I like coffee. It's delicious. I can buy their coffee and then I can maybe learn how to roast it and sell it when I get back to the States. And that's why I decided to start a coffee roasting business, which I still haven't done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. But you have started something really incredible, which is she's the roaster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was, um, that's been going really well and been working with a lot of people on that. So can you talk a little bit about how that started? Sure. Um, so she's the roaster started um, because uh, there was a there well there was a Facebook group called like Lady Roaster I believe that Taylor Brown started and uh, she reached out to myself and Joanna Elm of Drop Coffee in Sweden she reached out to both of us and said you know I'd really like to do something um, for women you know in roasting and you know educational and I just feel that you know that the the three of us have a lot of um, a lot of connections and could maybe offer a lot in the role of teachers or instructors and mentors. And we should do something we should, you know, what, what can we do? And so that's kind of how it started. But, um, we had, we were like, let's, let's do some type something educational. But previously about the year before I, um, worked with, um, a group, my committee on the roasters guild, this is before unification and, we had created this hashtag called she's the roaster and the hashtag was a response to, um, the roasting competition, um, which was definitely like the, it was the first time that it was like a roasting competition where everybody had to roast the same coffee. So there, there was a lot of like nuance to the competition itself. And part of the requirement was that you had to be at expo, um, to like represent your coffee if you wanted to be, if you didn't want to be disqualified. And so they invited all of the participants to come up and there were 40 roasters and there wasn't a single woman up there, like not one, you know, not, not one at all. I mean, I was judging, you know, and, um, I just thought that that was such a shame that it's like, not even that the the winner is a female, but like, there's not even a female participating in the competition. So I spoke with other women roasters, And, you know, a lot of the responses I would get was like, oh, well, you know, I just don't think I'm like, I don't know everything yet. You know, I'm still learning. And it's like, 
yeah, sure. We're all learning. You know, we're all still learning. We're going to learn for the rest of our lives. But you have been roasting for how long you've been roasting. They're like, well, I've been roasting for four years. I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of a long time. Don't you think like, you know, you need to give yourself more credit. You need to realize that you are a really great roaster in your own right. And maybe, you know, you are constantly comparing yourself to the person who taught you, but that doesn't mean you're a beginner for the rest of your life, you know? So she's the roaster hashtag was to create visibility that women actually roast coffee professionally. And then two, we did the, uh, we did the campaign where we asked women to sort of take a picture of another woman and post it and, you know, talk about how much they like them, you know, or why, why they respect them and, you know, what, what kind of amazing things they do as, as a roaster. And that was really important because if we had had women say, okay, all the women roasters, please post about yourself. Nobody would have posted anything, you know? So yeah, so we decided to use that hashtag as the name of our sort of, as basically our not not for profit. And now we do, we're trying to, we have, well, you can go to our website. It's she's the roaster.org. And uh, I just got my notice that I need to um, renew my, my website. So it's been up for a year now. So that's kind of cool. I guess that's an anniversary of sorts, but our mission and goals are up there and it is basically to, our mission is to get more women to become professional coffee roasters. And the way that we want to achieve that is through um, education and scholarships. That's incredible. And if you, if people want to get involved with She's the Roaster, they can just go to the website and get in touch with you there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter. It's, it's very, we only send a newsletter if there's something happening. It's a group of volunteers. So we all have full-time jobs and other commitments. So you have to be a little patient with us, but, um, when it's scholarship time, we're basically all, we're, we're all on board and, um, super available, but there's also a Facebook group, um, a she's the roaster Facebook group that I'm happy to invite anybody to any self-identifying woman. Before we wrap up, I posted a picture asking people what should like what questions should I ask you? I did it pretty much immediately before I started hitting record on this, so I didn't give people a lot of time. But I did get one question, and I figured I'd read it to you. Uh, someone asked, "How much do you think roasters should be paid?" Oh, that's- and the reason I'm asking you is because this is a very like big question, and I'm, I just want to know where you go with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that. You know, it's a tough, it's a tough question because it, it definitely is going to depend on your cost of living. Right. And, and I think it also like you have to sort of incorporate, well, what is your job as a roaster? Right. So a production roaster who, whose main job is machine operator, you know, doesn't really want to be involved with going to the cupping table. And some of you might not believe that that job exists, but it's totally out there. You know, that would be probably like on the lower end. And I have to say that my belief is that anything like minimum wage, you know, needs to be a lot higher. So um, (laughs) in the Bay Area, I really feel that, you know, basically anybody who's working full time should be making 50,000 a year. (laughs) Um, So going starting from that vantage point, you know, I'm not exactly sure what a roaster 
should get paid. They should definitely make enough to have a savings, be able to buy food without having to check their bank account, be able to get to work without fear of not having a fear of running out of funds. Um, I don't know. It's such a complicated, such a complicated question because I know from experience of talking to people that there are roasters that are paid, you know, $13 an hour. And there are roasters that make about $22 an hour. And most of it is based on where they're roasting for sure. And the cost of living of where, of where they are. But I don't know if there's a lot of um, upward mobility for roasters once they, once they kind of reach that like $22 an hour, like at least I haven't seen it, um, with a lot of companies. So I think like in order to like earn more past that, you end up having to become a manager like I did. So what should a roaster earn? The should is, I think is where I'm really getting caught, caught up with it because I think that the person who's bagging the coffee should make just as much money as the roaster. And I think both of them should get paid a hell of a lot more than they're getting paid now. I think that's a pretty good answer. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great answer. Um, Thank you for talking to us. And I feel like, I I mean, I've interviewed you a couple of times for different projects. And I feel like every time I learn something new about you and your life and something that makes me think about myself and my own life. So I hope that our listeners listen to you and think like, oh, wow, I didn't know that she did this or if she can do it, I can, or are those are feelings that I've felt before too. And I think that you, you share a story that has a lot of those themes in it. So thank you for being so open and honest. Well, thanks for inviting me. And I, I always love talking with you. I really admire all of the work that you've done and anything that I've accomplished, I definitely haven't accomplished by myself. I've done it with the support of like great coworkers or people who thought maybe I would do a great job and took it, took the chance hiring me. And also like my partner and my family really put up with a lot of me taking, doing a lot of, a lot of extracurricular activities. I'm very, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very lucky person, I think. I mean, the, you, you are also just an incredibly inspiring person too. So thanks. I mean, we can, we could do this in a circle for a while. <laughs> we could keep thanking each other. So I'm going to stop now. Um, again, thank you to Jen Apodaca for being on our show. Um, we hope that you enjoyed listening to Jen share her stories. I'm going to let you guys find Jen on social media and other forms because she's easy to find. Um, and if you want to talk to us, bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again for listening. Boss Barista was created by me, Ashley Rodriguez, and made in collaboration with Good Beer Hunting, which is an industry-leading brand studio, editorial platform, and podcast devoted to the many issues worth discussing around the things that we eat and drink. You can learn more at goodbeerhunting.com. Please check out their website. There are so many incredible articles that I find myself looking at constantly over and over looking for advice about how we can be better in the coffee industry. They're doing a great job and they're helping us make this podcast for you folks. So goodbeerhunting.com. Go ahead, check them out.